Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have now reached 30,000 feet. You may now use all your electronic devices and your laptop. online uh, family. Uh, good to see you guys today. Everybody doing okay? Uh, yeah, wow, uh, super convincing uh, that you guys are doing great this morning. Everybody doing okay this morning? Okay, there we go. I, now people actually know that there's people in the room uh, as they're watching online. Uh, we are uh, happy to have you guys joining us online uh, as well as here in person. Uh, I thought about uh, putting up a picture of some puppies or some laughing babies or something along those lines so that we could feel really good and, and then get into the message. Um, the, the message that, that we have, you know, we, we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, we're calling it altitude adjustment, that our attitude determines our altitude, that when we adjust our attitude, when we uh, begin to live according to his ways, we just sang about that, when we live according to his ways, that his ways are actually better. Uh, and there's a reason. I, I think oftentimes we think that uh, his ways are more restrictive or his, uh, uh, his ways are more constricting. Uh, but the r- reality is, is that there's freedom in that, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But, but when, we, when we adjust our attitude, uh, it allows us to kind of rise above the fray. And, and I, I think we could all agree that we're living in a culture and in a time where there's a lot of fray. And, uh, and it's, there's a lot of chaos going on. And it's not that we're uh, better than the world. Uh, but that we're just different. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And, and this, when we begin to operate and live out of God's ways, uh, we rise above the fray. My, my prayer for all of us, those of you watching online and, and here today, um, is that you would experience a freedom that, that I believe Jesus wants to give you today. Uh, and my hope is that we all came to, uh, to hear from God. Uh, because as we get into the message, this, uh, it's going to be really easy for us to get defensive. It's e- going to be easy for us to uh, kind of hold back. Uh, but can I just encourage all of us, as uh, Pastor Jay said in the transition, that, that we would just surrender ourselves and that we would, we would prepare our hearts to receive from him today. Can we do that? As Isaiah 54 says, uh, my my prayer has been along uh, the lines that, that I'd have the tongue of one instructed that I might have a word for the wounded today. Uh, and and that's, really, that's really my heart is, is not to bring any sort of shame or condemnation, but that we would experience um, a sense of freedom and a sense of grace and mercy uh, from God's word today. So let's, let's just take a moment. I wasn't going to do this because I've been doing it the last couple of weeks, but, uh, but I just want us to prepare our hearts as, as we hear from the Lord. Father, we, uh, we surrender to you. 
Can we just take a posture of receiving from your word? Uh, and we ask, God, that you would, as we maybe at times throughout the message today feel conviction, uh, even at times where there's pain that's resurfaced, God, I pray that your healing touch would take place today. And that those who may be walking in, uh, in woundedness would be made whole and would be healed in Jesus' name. Uh, the year was uh, 1773. There were boats sitting in the Boston's, uh, in, in the uh, Boston Harbor, Griffin's Wharf, uh, just waiting to bring in 342 chests of British tea. We know this story, right? Uh, there were roughly 100 colonists that jumped on the boats and they unloaded over the next three hours 90,000 pounds of tea into the Boston Harbor. It was the first act of defiance that the American colonists perpetrated against the motherland of Great Britain. It effectively began the Revolutionary War. It commenced a year later, but it was the act of, we just don't want any taxation without representation, so we're going to throw your tea into the ocean. And then now we celebrate that on the 4th of July by blowing things up. On another note, I, I've, I've been coaching a church up in uh, Boston, uh, I was, up until COVID hit, and, uh, and I, so I've been there quite a few times. On another note, I don't know if you guys know this. I don't even know if I've, I've shared this with you. But did you know, how, do you know how many people died in the Boston Massacre? Anybody? I mean, massacre sounds like a lot, right? Five. Five people died in the Boston Massacre. That's just a little information for you, a little trivia information for you. This really marked the first fake news of our time. You didn't come to get a history lesson, but I want us to think about what is it that, or maybe you did, uh, what is it about freedom, what is, it about, what is it that brings about freedom in our life? Sometimes we'll, we'll think things will bring freedom, but they actually bring confinement. I'll give you an example of this, our smartphones. Uh, many of us have smartphones now. Very few uh, have dumb phones or flip phones, although some do, and I actually applaud you for it. But, but when the smartphone first came out, wasn't it this with great anticipation that we thought, you know what, this is going to bring about such change into my life that I can now do work from anywhere. And you know what's happened since we've gotten the smartphone? We can now do work from anywhere. And it's really brought about some confinement in the sense that now we're obligated, because we have these smartphones in our life, we're obligated to respond to emails or text messages and things. And now what we thought was going to be this time-saving device is now actually just taking more of our time. There's some things that we invite into our life thinking that they'll bring us freedom, but they actually bring confinement. Some of them are just neutral, but oftentimes we get to that, uh, we get to, to, to that story kind of in the wrong way. And Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32, he wants to speak into our lives. 
And, and he, here's what he says about freedom. Because he knows that the, the human soul is longing for freedom. We want freedom, don't we? And he also knows that he's, he's the God that designed us to walk in freedom. And he knows the pathway to it. Here's what he says in John chapter 8. He says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to, and some translations actually say, If you obey my teaching. So not just that you admire it, not, not that you just agree with it or that you just come to this conclusion. Yeah, that seems to be right. I agree that we should love our enemies. I think it's good advice not to murder our neighbors. So Jesus goes, that's great, but, but do, you, do you really obey it? Do you operate out of it? You are really my disciples. You are my apprentices, if you will. And then you will know the truth. He says, as we read about it, all, all we want in the scriptures is we want to know how do the scriptures not just confine us, but how, does, how do they bring freedom into our life? And he says, you'll know that this is the way that I've designed life to work, that life is way better when you forgive people that wrong you, that, that when you forgive people and, and that are carrying bitterness, and instead of carrying bitterness, that you bring forgiveness. And he goes, that's true, just try it, you'll figure it out. And the truth, he says, will set you free. See, freedom, according to Jesus, isn't the ability to do anything we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. Right? He, what he's saying is freedom, according to Jesus, is the ability to become his disciple. Freedom, according to Jesus, is walking out the Sermon on the Mount. It's walking out the kingdom of God on earth and aligning ourselves with the way that we were designed to function, even as contrary as it might be to the world. And we push back against that freedom all the time, almost every day, by thinking... We, we think, you know what, Jesus, I, I mean, I can, I can adhere to, I can align myself with most of these things, but, but some of these things are pretty antiquated. Some of these things don't really apply to my life right now, and so I feel like maybe my way is better than your way. And so what happens is Jesus, in his sovereignty, he brings freedom through guardrails, and yet oftentimes we want to push away the guardrails thinking they're not for today. But Jesus, in his grace, gently pushes back on us because he knows that true freedom, true freedom is found in healthy limits rather than infinite options. A number of years ago, they did a study where they took a, a preschool teacher and they uh, took her class and they took them outside to play without any sort of fencing around it. What's interesting is all of the preschoolers stayed very, very close to their teacher because they wanted to be safe. They, they, wanted, they knew that there was security with the preschool teacher and so they didn't go, wander off very far. But then they, on another day, they took the preschool class, out. the teacher did, out to a playground that actually had a fence around it. You know what the kids did? They went all the way up to the fence because they knew that there was safety there, that the fence actually provided some safety to them. They knew that there was limits to how far that they could go, and they knew that if those limits are there, they must be there for a reason. 
limits, we think limits, are put in place to put us into jail or to ruin our lives or to to take away the fun in our life. But actually what Jesus says is the right limits actually lead to life. If we just open up our Bibles and start reading in Genesis chapter 1, and encourage you to do that at some point. Uh, he creates limits, and then he says that they're good. Think about it. He separates light from darkness. There's limits in that. Uh, he separates the land from the sea. He, he basically creates the sea, and he says, but you can only go so far because then there's land. There's, there's limits. Those are limits that lead us to life. And God has wired us, as human beings, he has wired us for limits. He's put it in our DNA and the fabric and the fiber of our very being. But we oftentimes push back against those limits. So today we're going to kind of explore this ironic truth that true freedom actually has limits. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give us kind of these back-to-back teachings about healthy limits. Today we're going to address uh, the, limit, the limitations of divorce and remarriage, and at a later time we're going to take a look at oaths. Oh, so I was going to try to combine them, but based upon how long I went last week, I thought, I'm not going to push my luck. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, uh, 31 through, we were going to go through 37, but we're going to hold off all the way through 37. Before I get to these, I, I recognize that today's message is going to touch some nerves. That for many, what we're about to read will no doubt bring up some pain. It's going to bring up some angst. And even though I didn't put up the puppies and the laughing babies I recognize that for at least the next, you know, 20 minutes or so, this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount um, is challenging. And in fact, the the truth is is that uh, teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is not exactly how you grow a church. (laughs) This is how you thin the herd. This is how you thin the church out when you start speaking on the ways in which Christ is actually asking us to live in our culture. And as I've reflected on the, these past 13 years that I've been pastoring here, I do believe that we have taken a very high view of marriage. As a church, we, we really put a high emphasis on that. And in doing that, we address how we prepare people for marriage. Uh, over the years, uh, I've done lots of premarital counseling, and I know Pastor Jay does some. I know uh, Pastor Lucy works with couples and, uh, and stuff. And so there's, there's just a lot of, of premarital counseling that takes place. And, and I think there's something of an importance in preparing people for the sacredness of marriage, to understand the commitments that they're making at times, even we, we bring about, at least I bring about, warnings. I've recommended people not get married, or I've refused to marry people at times. It's not a very popular uh, conversation, but I do it if I'm not comfortable with it. In some ways, we address first their covenant 
relationship with God before they ever enter into a covenant relationship with another person. And uh, I've, over the years, had the opportunity to do lots of weddings. And sometimes what will happen is uh, there'll be a couple and that, that don't have a relationship with God at all. They're not in any sort of covenant relationship with God, and, and no one will marry them. And so they'll call around to different churches, and uh, I, always, I typically say yes, as long as they will give me six uh, sessions of premarital counseling. And I do that because it's an opportunity to share with them about Jesus. And in one case, uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to, quite a few years ago now, I had a couple call just like that and uh, came in, sat in my office, and we addressed their covenant relationship with God. They didn't have one. And right there in my office, they surrendered their life to Jesus. And from that point forward, we could address the covenant relationship of their marriage. See, I, I, th- I think that there's um, a high view and a high understanding of the importance of marriage in our church. But I think an area that we could do a little bit better in, as I look at this, is how do we deal with single adults? How, how, do, we, how do we encourage and support those who are single adults in their current situation, but also if they desire to be married in, in the support for the journey that lies ahead of them? I think that's an area as a church, honestly, I'm just kind of giving you a, uh, some of my own personal feedback as I've been studying this that we could do better in. Uh, the other thing that, that I thought about is how do we strengthen existing marriages? There used to be a time where we were pretty focused on marriage classes or marriage life groups, and we've kind of gotten away from that, and uh, I wonder if maybe we ought to revisit that some, uh, that if there is uh, seasons that we go through. Uh, Kelly and I are about to uh, experience empty nesting. Uh, not, you know, we got a little bit of time, but uh, it's coming. Uh, as my son turns 19 uh, at the end of this week, what's that? Oh, actually, he turns 19 tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and then we've got two girls, but it's coming pretty rapidly. And I was thinking about uh, some of you who maybe have are empty nesters and the, the amount of support and wisdom that you could give us as we go into that season. And I, I just think that there's different seasons that we go through as married couples that we can actually support one another. How do we help hurting marriages? How do we help people contend for healing and restoration? See, in the area of hurting and broken marriages as pastors, uh, we can walk with you. We're not counselors, but we can point you to Scripture and help you, uh, help point you to the right Scriptures and help encourage you as you p- pursue reconciliation and restoration. In fact, the reality is, is the majority of our pastoral care exists in the context of, of marriage, in the context of family uh, pastoral care. So as we get into this passage, we, we have to really have this straightforward approach to it. Here's what Jesus says. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's just take a moment and take a deep breath. 
Because that that hurts a little bit. It's hard. That's a, that's a hard statement. And I'm well aware that this issue of divorce is one of immense pain. I would argue that every single person in this room has been either directly or indirectly affected by divorce. This isn't some off-the-wall thing that uh, happens to other people. This is, I could give you all of the statistics I could run through. I could tell you that America has the most divorces than any other country. I could, you know, I could give you all of that. But to me, it's not super helpful for for this teaching. When we hear those words, we feel sad. Pained. We we might it might even stress us out a little bit. We maybe some feel condemned. And, and if we feel those things, then we're really getting to the seriousness of this. That Jesus takes a very high view of marriage, and so should we. How do we keep God at the center of our marriage? The mistake that we often make is that somehow this is just an institutional thing. We think, well, it's just a piece of paper. It's just, you know, it's just a man-made institution. And I would just push back on that and say, no, this is very much, marriage is very much a God thing. This isn't an institution of man. This is a God thing. It might be, as it affects us firsthand, that you've been divorced. It might be in that you are a that your family, that you're in a family where your parents got divorced, your grandparents, somebody in your line, or it's a friend or someone, and we've all been touched by this in some way. And there's pain around that. And I want you to know that Jesus' words are not intended to be cold. They're not intended to be lifeless. They're intended to just, they're not, they're not intended to just be a rule of law. Where we just go, okay, I get that. I guess, you know, that's the only way. Jesus is actually, specifically in this case, on the Sermon on the Mount, entering into a cultural conversation that's going on. In the context, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Here's what's, what's really taking place is Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Here's why Moses gave that command to Israel. If you divorce your wife, you've got to give her a certificate of divorce. It was actually a really, really gracious statement. Because back in in the ancient cultures that surrounded the Israelite people, a man could divorce his wife for basically anything. She burns the toast, I'm out. Go to another town. Get a different job, start a new family, apparently have a midlife crisis. But if he wanted to, within five years of divorcing her, he could come back and take her back as his wife. He would have the the quote-unquote right to do that. And God goes, that that doesn't make any sense. If you're going to divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce so that she can move on. It's not fair to have her sitting around waiting five years and finally saying, okay, finally, I'm I'm free. 
It doesn't make any sense, Moses says, and so God gave them the provision of divorce and a divorce certificate. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, give it to her and send her from his house. There's a whole discussion that goes on after that, but this is the main idea of what Jesus is talking about. So he quotes this passage, but he does it knowing that in the first century, and in the century preceding that, there's been this massive discussion in their culture about divorce. There was this line of thinking that was perpetrated by two different rabbis. And one of the rabbis, his name was Hillel, was a famous rabbi. He had a large following. And when he talked about Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, he said that displeasing and indecent uh, mean anything that your wife does that you don't like. Anything. Right? She doesn't do the laundry? Divorce her. Doesn't clean the house? Divorce her. Right? It, anything. If you didn't like her looks, she's starting to age, divorce her. You could give her a certificate of divorce. And this became a very popular view. Here's the problem with that. A divorced woman had three options and really only three options. She could go and live with a wealthy family member. She could move back into, into the house with her parents uh, she could get remarried, and, and many, many women did this in that day, in that culture, but it was almost like a tainted marriage. It was, there was something that was wrong with it. It was seen as sort of kind of a second-class marriage. Or she could become a prostitute. She had to make money somehow. And a lot of commentators say that when Jesus says you force her to commit adultery, that's kind of what he's talking about. There's a lot of controversy around that, but many commentators actually believe that you're literally making her go out and work, work the streets. So this was Hillel's teaching. He said, listen, if there's any cause for divorce, burn the toast, whatever, divorce. Don't like her looks anymore, divorce. Then there's this other rabbi who came after Hillel that said, that's stupid. That's insane. What Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is adultery. He's talking about infidelity within a marriage. So when Jesus comes on the scene, there's this massive discussion that's taking place among the Israelites, among the Jewish people. Are we with Hillel or are we with Shammai? Is it Hillel's way or Shammai's way? And Jesus goes, Shammai nailed this one. When Moses talked about divorce, he wasn't talking about any little reason that a wife displeased her husband. They were talking about infidelity within a marriage. So Jesus chimes in and he does what he does throughout the scriptures. He comes to the defense of women because they were the ones getting pushed down by this. This was a very patriarchal society. They were the ones getting run over. They were the ones being wronged. And Jesus comes and says, no, this any cause divorce which Hillel talked about, is ridiculous. What Deuteronomy 24.1 is talking about is not any cause. It's talking about uniquely adultery. Okay, so take another deep breath. We all know people that have gotten divorced for reasons other than adultery. Maybe some of you are even sitting in this room. We've heard some teaching around that. 
where we go, well, is that really the only time where divorce is an option? Is that it? What about abuse? Should a woman stay in that kind of situation? It's not adultery. Should she go and have an adulterous affair so that she can then get divorced? Is that the option? I think we've heard some potentially dangerous and, at best, inaccurate teachings on this. So I want us to look at what Jesus is saying. And before I tell you what he's talking about, as we've done in past weeks, I want to tell you what he's not saying. This is what he's not talking about. He's not saying that you are living in a perpetual state of adultery if you remarry. Jesus doesn't say, and whoever marries her causes her to live in a perpetual state of adultery. No, it just says that adultery has occurred. So maybe that's a repentance issue. Maybe that's a a turning to Jesus issue. My goal this morning is is not to be the Holy Spirit. I would play a horrible Holy Spirit. You need to hear from the Holy Spirit yourself in this. He's also not saying that God cannot bless a marriage that's, that's in a, a remarriage situation. In fact, I would like to see anyone who can claim that the blessings that they receive from God are because they are so perfect and holy. There's so many of us that have experienced God's saving, sustained grace in our life, not because of who we are or because of what we've done, but because of who he is. He's also not saying that adultery is the only time divorce is an option, period. And you're like, well, you just read the scripture and that's exactly what it just said. And I get that, but, but what he's answering in this discussion is what Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. He says, well, Moses right there is talking about adultery. That's what Moses is talking about. The question is, is that the only time in the Old Testament the divorce is discussed? And the answer to that is no. No, it's not. And so he answers a question that's a common discussion among the rabbis, amongst the Pharisees. And he goes, this is what Moses is talking about. You also have Exodus chapter 21, verse 10 through 11, that talks about divorce as well. And the context of this is the Israelite who marries a slave and then takes on a second wife in addition to her. That's for a whole other sermon. But here's what it says. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. Some translations say conjugal love. He can't stop sleeping with her, uh, with his first wife, because he likes his second wife better. If he doesn't provide her with these three things, then she is to go free. Without any payment of money, she can leave the marriage. She doesn't have to pay back any sort of dowry or anything along those lines. She can leave because she was wronged. So all throughout the Jewish culture during that time, you have Deuteronomy chapter 24, which talks about adultery. And then you have Exodus chapter 21, which really talks about neglect. And did you know that in the Jewish marriage vows, they vow these three things to each other. I vow to clothe you, right? So for the husband, it's it's, I will provide the the resources. This is a different time, but provide the resources for you to make clothing. Uh, So I vow to clothe you. Uh, I vow to feed you. I'm going to provide enough money in the traditional household to put bread on the table. Uh, And for the woman, in that case, I'm going to prepare that meal. 
And I vow that to you. I promise that to you. I promise to you. It's in their vows. Could you imagine them standing one person in front of the other? I mean, I do a lot of weddings, and I always give people the opportunity to uh, write their own vows or use traditional vows, kind of the vows that you hear at many uh, weddings that you've attended. And, and after reading the Jewish vows, I'm like, maybe we should have redone our vows. I vow to clothe you, I vow to feed you, and I vow to make love to you all of the time. That was the vows that the Jewish people made. And they were just assumed within the Jewish culture, culture that these are reasons that people exit a conventional marriage. And what Jesus isn't saying in this teaching is that adultery is the only reason for divorce because he's not discussing Exodus chapter 21. There's a whole other teaching and a whole other debate that the scriptures don't talk about them having much in the New Testament. So here's the question. If you're thinking to yourself, Ryan, why? I'm not sure I agree with you. Because it clearly says, I do not permit divorce except for adultery. And I hear you, but my encouragement to you then would be to flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says in verse 10, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. There's no clause there. There's no reason for which it can't happen. It's saying that it can't happen. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, uh, and in abandonment, it can happen. In adultery, it can happen. And so did God change his mind between Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7? I don't think he did. Did Jesus get it wrong? No, I don't, I don't think he did. I think they're talking about two different instances and in two different cases where we need to read the scriptures intelligently rather than Remember, we, we talked about the difference between reading it literally, where we're all gouging our eyes out last week, to intelligently. And go, how do these things fit together? Because neither Paul nor Jesus, listen to this, intends to give a complete list of where divorce is acceptable. They don't. And if we want to figure out why divorce takes place, we really have to figure out first, what is the covenant marriage all about? If we can figure that out, if we can understand the covenant marriage relationship, then we can understand why divorce would ever even be an option when God designed it to be one man, one woman for life. That's what we have to figure out. And I think Scott McKnight in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount says it well. He says, if covenant love is commitment to be with someone and for someone as someone who is working unto divine ends, then marriages are destroyed when one partner refuses to be with the spouse or who becomes someone who is against that spouse. When a man obviously fails to be the husband, that covenant love demands, or when a wife obviously fails to be the wife, that covenant love demands, grounds for divorce may be present because the covenant is being destroyed. So you may have heard, and what I would submit to you, some potentially bad teachings on this. So much so that you have women who are being physically abused, but because of, of this clause or this, this teaching that says it's, you, you can only divorce for adultery, they're left in an abusive relationship. 
And I would just submit that I don't think that that's what the Bible actually teaches. When Jesus says you force her to commit adultery, what he's saying is you go, and you can go back and read it, but I, I, I'm telling you that anyone who divorces his wife, this any cause, this halal cause, any reason, doesn't work. It doesn't work. You read all throughout the scriptures that the only one who's capable of breaking the marriage vow is the one who's wronged, the victim, which opens up a whole other line of questions, which is probably, again, for a different sermon. We're going to end with a couple of questions this morning. So what Jesus is not saying is that adultery is the only case or the reason for divorce ever, and he's not saying that anyone who remarries commits adultery. He's saying that if someone's tossed aside and that and that man decides to go get another wife and potentially do another cause divorce, he's going, that person is committing adultery because they never were really divorced. And I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, I'll just recommend a, a book. It's called, I think we have a picture of it. Uh, it's called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Brewer. It's, it's a gracious book explains the issues well, and I think will give some clarity to that. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that giving your wife a certificate for divorce, as we've talked about for the past few weeks, is a pretty low bar. That's what he's saying. He's, he's going, let's talk about this. Is, is that really our standard that we could just toss a woman to the side and as long as we give her a certificate of divorce because she burned the toast, we can say, okay, it's okay in God's eyes. He's like, no, that's not the case. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the bar is being raised over and over and over again in how we are to live our life, that there's something in which we go deeper and deeper into our souls and we wrestle what's on the, with what's on the inside. And Jesus wants to address what's going on on the inside of our lives this morning. And what's on the inside is that we typically want to get our way. We want to push back against the guardrails and what's on the inside is, is that we want our way right now. And Jesus goes, that's not the way that marriage works. So what is Jesus teaching? That he did design marriage to last a lifetime. One woman, one man for life. But the reality is, is that doesn't always happen. From the very beginning, it didn't always happen. And so in Matthew chapter 19, 7 through 10, which I would say is uh, really a companion passage to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Why then, they, the disciples, asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And the context in verse 3 is that Jesus, uh, is Jesus, are you for any cause divorce? It's right there. Like, that's what the disciples are asking. Jesus, are you okay with any cause divorce? And it would help if, there, if this was really pointed out or underlined in our Bibles, but it's not. It's a discussion that they're having, and here's Jesus' reply. He says, uh, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. There's two ways a heart could be hard. One, it could be hard in the person who is violating the covenant, 
Maybe they're sleeping around. Maybe they're neglecting. Maybe they've abandoned and they refuse to repent and they refuse to come home. That could be one way. Another way a heart could be hardened is by a spouse that's been wronged and can't forgive, can't come to a place of reconciliation. They just can't get there. And the, the, the perpetration has been too long or it's been too painful it's too much. And Jesus says that's why we have the provision of divorce. It's, it's when the hearts get hard. He goes on, it wasn't this way from the beginning. In verse 10, the disciples said to him, Oh my goodness, if we can't have any cause divorce, this situation between husband and wife, it's not better to marry at all. They're going, this standard that you're talking about is really, really high. You mean I've got to be committed to this woman for the rest of my life? That's a lot. If we can only divorce our wives if they violate the covenant, we shouldn't even marry at all. And it gives you some insight into the context that Jesus is speaking into. It's designed to last a lifetime. And when we talk about having this high value, this high view of marriage, we're recognizing that marriage was designed to be for a lifetime. Second, reconciliation is always the goal until it's not possible. It can't be possible for two reasons. One, you feel like the options have been exhausted, or two, a spouse has moved on and they've gotten remarried. God would say, don't break up that marriage in order to try to restore the first marriage. <laughs> That's a whole other level of crazy. Don't do that. Re reconciliation is always the goal if it's possible. Jesus taught against, really, both Halil and Shammai. He would, uh, th that would say that adultery needs to end in divorce. He's really saying reconciliation is how this should end. You should choose to forgive. Unless their hearts are hard, you can choose to forgive. You can reconcile. You can actually move forward even after adultery. And you can have a grace-filled, healthy marriage. And this concept was revolutionary in Jesus' time. In their time, it was, you commit adultery, you're done. Let's get the certificate, let's move on. But he's elevating the value of marriage because he knows that divorce is painful and he knows that God hates divorce. And he knows that he hates divorce because it tears apart people's lives. And Malachi chapter 2 says, I hate divorce. He's not saying he hates divorced people. It's just that he knows what happens to people who are going through it. God says, I don't want that for your life. I've never met a divorced person say, you know what, I'm really hoping my kids get a divorce one day. That doesn't happen. You know who else hates divorce? Divorced people. But he's saying your hearts were hard, but that's not the way it was in the beginning. He doesn't criticize the legal process of divorce. Divorce is just really a sanctioning of something that has already happened. There's already been a break in the covenant, and so he, what he's saying is he's sanctioning something that's already taken place. Did you know that God divorced Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8? It says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because all of her adulteries. 
meaning all of her worshiping of other idols and all of that. God knows what it's like to be divorced, but he also knows what it's like to have reconciliation. He says, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Which leaves us with a couple of questions, and then I'll close, and I'll close with these. Is divorce a sin? That's really what we want to know, isn't it? And in, my answer to that is sometimes yes, sometimes no. When a vow is broken, when there is a, a covenant relationship that's been broken because of neglect, because of adultery, because of these things, then yes, that in and of itself is a sin. But if you've had somebody neglect you or abandon you or hurt you and you divorce that person, that's not a sin. Some things are, are done intentionally and then some things happen involuntarily. They have something involuntarily done to them. There's a story that I heard this last week of a, a family, a blended family, who uh, both the husband and the wife divorced their spouses uh, for reasons other than any of the provisions, any of the things that we read in Scripture. It was just more of you burned the toast or this isn't working and so we're, we're getting a divorce. And they remarried. But as they were growing in their relationship with God, they realized that they had never repented from this, from their previous marriages. So they gathered their blended children, they gathered them all together, and they, in front of their children, repented. Repented of, of their sin, repented of their decisions, that they didn't give those decisions a chance. And interestingly, that relationship went from a very difficult conflict uh, situation to now all of a sudden there's peace in the home and there's reconciliation and there's grace and mercy. Another question that comes up is, can I divorce my current spouse if I'm remarried to them since it's adultery? No. No, two wrongs don't make a right. Like, no, at, at this point, it may just be a repentance issue. It may just be a thing that you take to the Lord. There's grace for that. If I'm divorced, can I remarry? And I just want to encourage you with this, that if you are divorced, could I encourage you to learn to live within God's sustaining grace. Because sometimes what happens, I use this illustration all the time with couples who are separated, couples who are having marriage problems, is don't jump out of the boiling water into the fire. Sometimes our need to have companionship and relationship often supersedes our ability to understand our relationship with God. And could I just encourage you that prior to any sort of remarrying, could you really work on your covenant relationship with God and live in peace and the satisfaction of knowing that his sustaining grace is there. So as a church, where do we stand on this? Where do we stand on divorce? Just encourage you to stand by me and all of us who trust daily in the grace of God. What I want for us is that 
is really what I want for, for everyone. That when we sin, we repent and we turn to Jesus with our whole hearts. That we experience his grace. Do I have parameters by which I will remarry someone? I do. We do as a church. So there's freedom in covenant. We think that there's confinement, but there's actually freedom in this. And what Jesus wants to do is hold up covenant and go, think about the freedom in covenant. Think about the freedom in not having to decide or think about whether or not you're going, uh, not you're going to love, but you just do. You've already made that commitment. You decided to love based on the vows that you have made. And what Jesus wants to do, especially in his day, but in our day, in our time and day too, he's moving men specifically, but I'd say men and women, to, women towards a con- covenantal view of marriage, a higher view of marriage rather than a consumerism view of marriage. That this is not a, hey, does this fit my needs right now? Is this making me happy in the moment? Am I pleased? Am I satisfied? Am I good? No, he wants us to have the freedom of going, I've decided and I'm committed to this and I'm going to stick with my commitment till death do us part in sickness and in health. I will count myself forever blessed as long as I will live. I just want you to know that I get it. There's a ton of pain in the room around this issue in particular. There's pain on the side of people who have been walked out on. You're like, I wanted to fight for this, and I didn't get that option. And I just want you to know that Jesus sees you, Jesus hears you, and Jesus has compassion on you. Then there's people who have made decisions. Maybe some of them you regret. Maybe some of them you don't regret. But you've made decisions that have led to to divorce, and there's pain around that too. I just want you to know, go read through the discussion where Jesus meets a woman at the well who's on her fifth marriage and see the grace that Jesus gives her. Look at the woman in John chapter 8 who's caught in the act of adultery. And he just showers his love on her. Grace always meets us exactly where we're at. Grace always moves us forward. So wherever you find yourself on this topic in particular, know that God in his grace wants to meet you, wants to move you forward, and wants to shower his love upon you. Let's pray.